Hey, 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 it's Vince in the Bay. Welcome to yet another episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. This episode, my guest is Josh Mayfield, who is the Director of Security Strategy at Absolute. Josh and I met at the RSA Cybersecurity Conference last month in San Francisco, and we spoke about how Josh got into cybersecurity and about some of his work with Absolute, which focuses on endpoint security solutions. We also talked about GDPR, the future of cybersecurity, and much, much more. Enjoy. RSA 2019. And now I'm joined by Josh Mayfield, and he is the Director of Security Strategy at Absolute. Thanks for joining me, Josh. Glad to be here, Vince. So how has RSA been treating you so far? Well, RSA has been great. The weather has been less cooperative, but the, the event's been great. Uh, some smart people sharing their knowledge and ideas. It's been great. So tell me about uh, yourself and, you, and your background and how you got into the cybersecurity uh, industry and then uh, what brought you to, to Absolute. I have a humanities background in uh, philosophy and uh, graduate school in that way. I was going to be a professor. Uh, but then when I was in graduate school, I actually fell into my first software job and I, I could say fell into it and fell in love with it and uh, began to understand these uh, fantastic things that businesses and organizations could do with computing power. Uh, and so went back to school and formalized that in business school with some uh, cybersec concentrations and went to a, a couple of different companies, uh, usually in a, a, a go-to-market customer-facing role, uh, both in network, uh, identity management, data security, data protection, big data analytics for security, and uh, also ended up here at Absolute, been here for uh, about a year, and it's been fantastic. Uh, great opportunity, great company, very unique position in the market. Um, so happy to be here. And uh, so your role as director of security strategy, what, what sort of day-to-day uh, stuff does that entail? Primarily, it comes in the form of informing our product of uh, our product development and our product management of security implications and uh, what we could factor into uh, furthering our product to delight our customers, uh, to have them fall out of the chair excited with something that we can uh, enable them to do in their security operations. And then secondarily, which is probably the more primary thing, which is uh, interfacing with customers and understanding their um, I don't want to do the vendor speak of what keeps you up at night, uh, but what are their goals uh, in a more optimistic fashion rather than what are your problems? No, where are you trying to get? Where are you, what, what, what's your destination? And then by understanding that, we can then feed that back into our organization to say, okay, can we solve that need and help that customer accelerate themselves down that path toward their goal? So what's an example of, of one of these uh, goals that you've gone down the path to achieve? Yeah, well, Lately, there have been a couple that uh, across the industry we see commonly uh, expressed, and this is a goal state, one is uh, adopting certain frameworks, whether that's the CIS uh, critical control, and that's going to be our our framework and our security operation, or we want to reduce certain metrics like a mean time to response, mean time to discovery, window of vulnerability, or we want to head down a path where we can say that we are zero trust in our environment. Any one of these different goal states, uh, 
Absolute can help accelerate with that visibility and control over the domain of endpoints uh, to ensure that their goal is, is actualized. What's new with Absolute? You're, are you in unveiling anything, uh, any new research or products here at RSA or, or, or shortly thereafter? We do have a, a research report that will be published later this month in the, uh, the back end of March. And uh, we also have some, uh, some new product offerings, some tech. Wait, what's pre- the research, research report? What's that about? Um, the research report is really the product of asking a, a hypothetical question, uh, testing a hypothesis. And that is what happens to uh, pristine, strong security Uh, a a robust security posture across a cohort of homogenous devices, what happens to them over the course of a year? And so we established that relatively homogenous cohort across different device manufacturers, but um, OS builds, homogenous, looking at certain control factors, hardening elements that go into a, a profile of strong cyber hygiene. And then we looked at those critical controls that comprise that security posture and then just looked to see what happened to them over time. What we discovered was that it appears that security controls on your endpoints are, like everything else in the universe, subject to the law of entropy. They will go from order to disorder, from pristine to decayed. And they'll do so naturally, reliably, and predictably. And the causes were the most profound, which was that no one seems to intend for this to happen. It's a natural slide toward decay. And primarily, it appears that the culprit is actually the amount of competing resources that we've stuffed onto these devices. It's a knife fight in a phone booth. And all of these controls, apps, agents are all competing for the same underlying resources. And when they compete, some suffocate and some are gluttonous. And the, the gluttonous ones survive, the suffocated die or broken, disabled, um, and need uh, attention and repair. And so when you when you model those controls and see what happens to them, what state change do they go through, um, it's, it's quite alarming. Um, half, uh, we, we did six and a half million devices uh, that, of that homogenous cohort. Uh, you can have a mathematical expectation that 50% of your devices will have failed encryption within two weeks. It will fail uh, because some other competing resource will interfere with it. There's going to be agent collision and friction and something breaks, which is exactly what we see in the natural world with, with entropy. <laughs> things, uh, things collide, things um, rub up against one another, and they decay. And then you said there were some, some products, uh, some sort of user interface changes or something like that? That's true. Uh, there are certain uh, absolutes in a privileged position because we are so deep down uh, in the BIOS of the firmware across 30-plus uh, OEMs. And so we have a a unique position where we can look upward into the system and ask it a lot of questions. And we gather all of this data that is then packaged up as asset intelligence uh, for our customers. And what's, what's interesting is that you can take that data and then apply it to certain models. And then using those models have a much... Uh, more human approach to that data by, for, for example, seeing that drift, how do our devices and our security posture drift over time and what are the mitigating factors that are bringing it about? What action could be done to restore it? But modeling that out in a statistical way is uh, something our, our users have been craving and it's all in the back end and it's all there, the data, but now really being upfront and displaying that model in a very impactful visual. 
Oh, you have some personnel changes at the executive level, right? Some really good changes. Um, For a year's time, we were led by our interim CEO, Steve Munford, who has an extraordinary pedigree and led us very well. And one of the crowning achievements before he exited was finding our our current CEO, Christy White. She has a pedigree that is uh, remarkable, dating back all the way to Sun Microsystems in the uh-huh. early days when you know Sun's a startup, yeah. <laughs> and and taking up through uh, multiple stops along the way, including good technology, DTEX, where she was uh, leading the insider threat uh, requirement out there in the market, and then we were lucky enough for her to to say, uh, I'll, I'll take it, and and we're already seeing tremendous progress under her leadership, uh, and then today we announced uh, our new CTO, Nico Van Summerson. So he'll Wait, uh, well, who, Nico who Nico Van Summerson. Nico Van Summerson. That's correct. And we're really excited about that, uh, that leadership that's come in, challenging us to, to be our best selves and to don the spectacles of the customer and, and truly see the world from their vantage point and ask ourselves uh, the very necessary questions. How do we delight that person? And, and ensuring that everything that we bring to market does so. The new security solutions being implemented by modern enterprises how do these new solutions integrate with all the existing tools? Like, do you have, do you, as an organization, do you deal with conflicts like that where you've, you've got these, these new tools and you're trying to integrate them with old infrastructure? I mean, it is a common concern that a lot of people have. And that, that particular flow, especially when you think about like identity and access management, for example, you have three different domains. You have the network, you have devices, uh, whether they're mobile devices or uh, an endpoint, a traditional endpoint like a desktop laptop. And then you have the cloud and all the attendant applications that are in the cloud, whether they're your own cloud applications or cloud infrastructure or some third party. Um, and making sure that there is a, a seamless user, knowledge worker flow through all of that is a, is a big challenge. And it's one of the reasons that uh, analysts such as like Chase Cunningham uh, at Forrester has said, if you're looking at a solution that doesn't have robust APIs, you're looking at the wrong solution. And so interesting enough, it's, I think it's that connective tissue that's been the most, uh, gotten the most traction is, is the one that can connect the, the various systems rather than uh, we have this great new tool. Don't you want us? Oh, and by the way, we, yeah, we have a, a, a nice little plug into that old thing you have. Um, that's not as attractive as the, the one showing up to be that connective tissue between the canyon. Um, and, and I agree with Chase that if you don't have a robust set of APIs, you're, you're looking in the wrong, at the wrong vendor. One of the things that I've been, I've been talking to people with here, well, last year, it started last year when uh, GDPR was mm-hmm. all the buzz and it has since been implemented and it's been about a year now. And also we have uh, here in California, there's a California Consumer Privacy Act. You know, these new regulations, uh, what sort of obstacles do they present to, to the existing security solutions? And how are these regulations influencing your development of, of new solutions? Yeah, we've been really fortunate that with things like the GDPR and CCPA uh, Pivita in Canada uh, as well. A new. Uh, That's new to me. Yeah, P- a new. Pivita. Pivita, yeah. P I V. P I P E D A. P I P E V D A. Oh my God, another acronym. Yeah, so those three all coincide okay. within the same within the 12 month period. 
Uh, Pivota has been around for a long while, but uh, they have new enforcement rules now that have been place, uh, put in place back in November. You have Privacy Shield that's breaking down between the United States and the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States uh, shrugging its shoulders and the EU uh, you know, wagging its finger and Privacy Shield is sort of deteriorating. And then you have GDPR and CCPA, um, all of which are the fanfare around them seems to be uh, you hear things like the Cambridge Analytica you hear things like uh, web scraping and things um, but that's but when you actually look into the laws it, it's much more um, fundamental than some of those newfangled ways to take uh, information from a user or about them in a social context and then repurposing that to uh, deliver them misinformation uh, although that is one particular use case of uh, swiping data and usurping someone's privacy when you look at the laws themselves it's much more about just the fundamental right to your own information and from my perspective when you look around your own home uh, and you compare it with the home of 1995 what's missing Uh, we don't have any paper maps we don't have any physical compass we don't have a lot of books newspapers are gone there are no phone books either no dvds no cds certainly no vinyl uh, any longer. I mean, we, we keep going, the Rolodex, and on and on and on. We've dematerialized our world. And so human needs have been satisfied with bits and bytes instead of atoms and molecules. And so as we move away from physical stuff to a more digital world, so too have people. People have been dematerialized. Who you are today is a collection and cadre of, of pieces of information, data about you that makes you, you. And if we don't get our hands around this, uh, that persons that are citizens and residents, and, uh, and if you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I mean, what's the third article? Everyone has the, the right to life, liberty, and security of person. That's in the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights, 1948, right? Um, well, what is security of person in the 21st century? Is, does that not count their digital self? Um, and a lot of governments are waking up to that. And that's the biggest thing that I see in those laws is that it's a guarantee of a right to the digital person. And I think if we don't conceptualize it the right way, if we're just going and manipulating certain controls and making sure data lakes are protected and so forth, I think we're going to miss the, the point. Um, the, the point is, is that an individual's personhood is that composition of data. You are a custodian of it and you ought to protect it. So is there anything that Absolute is doing in particular to help enterprises comply with these new trends and regulations? Yeah, one of the most difficult things um, with complying with it is the data residency riddle, the residency riddle. So uh, where is all the data? So you take the right to rectify this in the GDPR. You call up an organization that has your information. You say, I want my information changed or I want to exercise my right to erasure. I want the right to be forgotten. Uh, delete it everywhere. Well, now you have to know where it all is. Um, and when it comes to endpoints, which is our fascination that we, we, we put our, our own mental energy into, uh, those things stay out of sight. They go off network. They're, they're no longer connecting back in. They become dark. But with Absolute, one of the interesting things about us, because of that embeddedness, we never lose our strangle grip on that device. And so your line of sight has always persisted. And by having that line of sight and then having our, our DLP blade crawler in there, um, you're never too far away from being able to assess where is Vince's data. Oh, it's in all these places, not just in our data center, not just in our cloud and, and some 
AWS server or something. But instead, it's actually out on these 11 different endpoints that has Vince's information on them. Okay, surgically remove. And so being able to do that is actually... Um, I'll put it this way. We're seeing tremendous growth in Europe <laughs> because of, of those abilities to... Yeah, that uh, seems to be the common theme. Is, and, and it's something that I would guess would happen anyway is that it's good, it's good for business, probably. It is. And, the, and not in that scary sense, but in that hopeful sense of, hey, we, we, we can solve this. We don't have to mm-hmm. set our hair on fire. We don't have to believe every pessimistic thing that tumbles out of a vendor's mouth. We can just instead uh, have a more confident knowledge of this is where it is, take action, problem solved. Uh, and we don't have to become fearful and, and skittish over it. Okay. So moving forward, the future, what do you predict the security and privacy ecosystem will look like in five years? And how will it be different than what it is today? You know, we've just come through an, uh, a new architectural shift. So once upon a time, you know, the 80s, early 90s, we, we didn't really connect computers together all that often. Then we started doing that so that we, we went from computer security to network security. And then that network started to become very virtualized. And so we started looking at virtual security and application security that's, uh, that itself is virtualized. Again, bits and bytes, dematerialization. And then we went really bad and we just dematerialized all those servers and data centers and we went into a cloud type of environment. And now as we're getting into the edge um, where sensors are computers, um, that ability is going to be our next great challenge is to, um, to somehow rationalize the controls that are in one place and extend them through. And so I see, I'll go ahead, I'll go ahead and not go on the record uh, of what we're going to see in security over the next five, 10 years is going to be an increased attention on intent-based security. And What's intent-based security? What do you mean there? Establish- What's your intention yeah. with that statement? <laughs> yeah, the intent-based security. Within that concept is uh, speaking in, in plain English or, or whatever language you, you so choose, but this is my declarative policy because when you think about security, policy is ultimately its bedrock. This can do that. That cannot do this. You know, pure and simple. It's what we do when we blacklist, whitelist, um, good, bad, in, out, and so forth. Well, Oftentimes, the controls vary so significantly between environments, between uh, OSs and builds, uh, applications, versions of those applications. Everything is so varied. But what's not is an organization's intent. We never want this to happen. We always want this to happen. And in here, you know, ask us, and there's some conditional uh, aspects, circumstantial, contextual, uh, conditional. And what I see going to happen is the winner out there is going to be the one who can orchestrate that who can receive your declarative policy and through technology interpret what are the corresponding controls that will bring that goal about so that your intent is met. And we're going to see security op- in terms of how security functions as a, as a glob in the organization, not every single bit and, and part, but when you look at it, it looks a lot like a finite state machine. New input comes in, adjustment is made, restored to intent. The same way the human brain works, the same way that uh, our body temperature works, and we regulate our temperature through shivering or sweating, the way that a thermostat works, or um, uh, autopilot in a plane, or self-driving cars. These are finite state machines that are continuously taking new inputs and then translating those into the appropriate action to get to the goal state. But far too often in my industry, we're focused on those individual controls, those apps, those agents, those uh, architectures, and so forth. 
But I think the winners over the next five, 10 years are going to be the ones that say, tell me your intent. And I have a piece of technology that will interpret that in the context of your enforcement points. And then those will be actualized and you'll get to your goal state and stay there. Um, what's your biggest pet peeve with the cybersecurity industry? Fear mongering. What's an example of some fear mongering that, that you've seen that, that really bugs you? Oh, just it, it's the it's the hyperbole. This devastating, this wreak havoc, the blame game and the, uh, the, the, the boogeyman under every single corner. It's just, it's not a probabilistic way of looking at the world. Um, it's not, uh, we're in California. We're in San Francisco, California. Why are we here? Don't earthquakes happen here? Um, yeah, yes, of course. That's, that's what I try to tell people that keep coming here is like, Watch out. You're going to be walking down the street one of these days, and you're just going to fall into the earth. Get out while you can. Get out while you can. That is Vince's method for traffic control right there. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, well, the point just being that uh, we talk about all these things that are doom and gloom and scary and awful. And then the worst part is that that I, I think is the, the, the gall that some of them have to castigate and wag their finger at the people they call customer. It drives me insane. So if you ask me what's my biggest pet peeve, it is scaring people who make our world possible. We are right now talking through these microphones. You're working from your machine there. Lights are above us at a security conference that is enabled and made possible by IT professionals. How dare you wag your finger at them? Everything about your social media posts is made possible by somebody in IT. Stop it. It, it, yeah, that one, that one gets under my skin. Apparently. Okay. On the other side, what's something that you love most about the cybersecurity industry? What gives you hope? What makes you happy? The creativity and the innovation. There are things that exist today that we couldn't even think about before. And what's interesting is that the very uh, enemy that you're fighting is your inspiration to do something innovative. And so I think that's the most uh, interesting thing is that we can learn from those trying to do us harm and get better still. And there's not really any other industry, whether you're in retail or you're in transportation or aviation, I mean, whatever you're in, there's nothing like that. That sort of recursive learning that happens continuously getting better based on um, the chess game you're playing with the other side. That's pretty exciting. All right. Last question. When are the robots taking over? Never. You're the second person who said that to me. What's your reasoning? Well, there are certain um, automation and artificial intelligence that can be leveraged, but a full-on takeover I I don't see happening because of the interpretation uh, aspect of, of any decision. And so even if, even, I mean, really, if you put, what was it, the Jeopardy champion that lost to an AI and uh, chess champions lost to an AI, uh, those are all true, but they're also um, definitive and uh, have specific answers to a set of possible computations. But the human mind does this thing where it can introspect and it it can have thoughts about its thoughts, which no AI can really demonstrate that it can do. So it doesn't have a, an ability to check itself against its own conclusions. And so that, that tampering switch that the human mind has is really important so we don't make a mistake uh, by being able to, to rely on the wisdom of crowds and, and put our own predictions and our own thoughts in front of someone else who can interpret it differently. Um, but when there's a single interpretation made by an artificial intelligence, people aren't going to trust it entirely to make every decision. 
but there are certain things that can be accelerated. I mean, I think Sherm did a, the Society of Human Resource Management, they did a study, it's a little dated, about a year ago, uh, that it takes uh, approximately 500 hours, person hours of support staff to get a new employee up and productive. Uh, there are definitely ways that we can accelerate that. And so uh, those, those sort of mundane and typical um, blueprint-style uh, aspects of our internal processes can definitely use artificial intelligence. When it comes to uh, robots making decisions, I don't know if humans are ever going to hand them those keys. How about cyborgs then? Oh, much more likely. RoboCop. We're already seeing some great things out of several labs where you have artificially intelligent dogs that will play fetch. So we're not far but from... Those are robotic dogs, though, right? I'm talking about a human merged with a computer. Oh, not the thing starting as a machine and then putting on human skin. Yes. But, oh, yeah. we're already there. Really? We're already there, yeah. Well, there like are, prosthetic there, limbs yeah, and stuff. Yeah, there are amputees but... that have a... yeah. That yeah. has sensory input, a computation, and then an, an action based on uh, neuro, neural impulses. So yeah, yeah. Now the, the, it's true. We are kind of there. Right. So they're responding to the human brain telling the arm to, to raise or the hand to clench. But, uh, but the other way around, where the machine is doing the thinking, the human body is the one doing the action. Uh, I think that that's probably only going to come in the sense of augmented intelligence, uh, there, there are matrix-like things that probably aren't too far in the future of enabling the human brain to do more, um, to suffer less, and, and not ha- fall victim necessarily to its own discursive thinking. Uh, there are probably, uh, and it'll probably come in the form of nanos that can control the, the electrical signaling of a, of a damaged brain to make it function more like a... Um, uh, I don't want to say normal, but a, but a, a well-functioning, uh, sane human mind. Uh, there's so probably some be, things that, we can do there. Where that he, could be like a, a mental health um, Certainly. advancement. Absolutely. I've never even thought about because using we're, nanotechnology to solve a mental health issue. That's, that's interesting. Well, we have an opportunity to do it right now, and there's at least theoretical research that's being done with using nanos to repair neural damage from a, a patient suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, if we can repair neurons, then why can't we also regulate what they do? with the same nano. And so that, that could be an aspect where the machine is doing the quote-unquote thinking. Uh, but when it comes to the limbs apart from the brain, I think cyborg and, and uh, bionic enhancement, you know, when my, when my children, I have, I have small elementary-aged children, when they're my age as adults, they'll probably know people with, with bionic body parts. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, Josh, I really appreciate this conversation. Um, thank you so much. Before I, I, I let you go, how can uh, one who is listening to this uh, find out more about Absolute and, and the work you're doing over there? Absolute.com is a great place to start. Um, if you go through there, uh, we do have a, um, a publication offshoot on that website. I have several articles posted there. If you want to uh, learn about me a little bit more, you'll probably see my articles in places like SC Magazine, Dark Reading, Security Boulevard, places like that. Drop me comments. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. You can um, see a lot of uh, content that we put there and learn about the company, learn about some of the trends in the industry. Uh, absolute. Spelled just like it sounds. Uh, what about Twitter? Are you on Twitter? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have a huge following. I'm kind of... Uh, 
I'm bookish. I'm really bookish. I, I, I enjoy uh, reading and having conversation and reading some more. And so, uh, good answer. You should, you, sh- you, you, I've wasted way too much time on Twitter. Yeah. So, so I'm just, uh, I'm not very, uh, good with the social media and t- well, at least on the Twitter and stuff. Like I said, I just called it the Twitter. That tells you something. I'm in an industry that's uh, saturated with people uh, addicted to self-promotion. So I, I choose not to participate, but, uh, but I do good have answer. a Twitter handle. Good answer, by the way. <laughs> I, I do have a Twitter handle. It's just my first full name, Joshua uh, Mayfield, my last name uh, on Twitter. And then Absolute Corp is, uh, is our corporate Twitter handle. Cool. Great. Josh Mayfield from Absolute. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your RSA. I will. Thanks a lot, Vince. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. You can find more information about this episode and past episodes at vinceinthebay.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, CastBox, Podcast Addict, and over 9,000 other podcast apps. And hit me up on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash Vince in the Bay. Until next time. Ciao.